Do you ever walk down the memory lane, read some history book, or watch some movie about an alternate universe? Stop and ask, what if? What if the South won the Civil War? What if John F. Kennedy survived the assassination attempt? What if I applied to school here, not there, chose this career over that, moved to City A, not City B? On a more personal level, I think about my immigrant experience. I came here at age 8, 1989. But what if my mother took me and followed my father to the States in the early 80s, when I was like two or three, instead of waiting until the late 80s? Would their marriage have survived? Would I be a completely different person? For those who grew up here in the 80s, you guys have to help me with that one. Some of this is exercise and futility. Most of these could-haves and would-haves, we probably benefit from following Paul's example on these. We're getting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. But I think some of these what-if questions, if used correctly, can help us grow spiritually. We can reflect, count our blessings, and ask ourselves, What if I never heard the gospel? Thank God that I have, and I believe. What if I took the wrong turn that night or followed my simple desires in in that season? Thank God I didn't. As you continue in 1 Samuel, I imagine David looking back on his life with the same sort of gratitude. What if I raised my hand against Saul? Thank the Lord for the restraint he granted me. What if I avenge myself against Nabal? I'm glad, I'm grateful I didn't. And in today's passage, another big what if. What if I lined up for my battle, for battle against my own people? What if I didn't get back to Ziklag sooner? I'm glad it didn't come to that. Let's first look at 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it in page 209. 1 Samuel 29. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle. 
lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Before I present my sermon points, I need to make a technical commentary on geography and the arrangement of events in 1 Samuel. It says in verse 1 the, that the Philistines got forces gathered at Aphek while the Israelites lined up at Jezreel. At first glance, that doesn't seem very interesting. But if you turn back to chapter 28, verse 4, we read the following. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. So where are the two armies? Now Jezreel is right next to Gilboa, so it's easy to imagine the Israelites shifting locations. But the movement of the Philistines is confusing. In chapter 28, they're in Shunem, only about eight miles away from Saul. But in today's passage, chapter 29, the Philistines are in Aphek, 40 miles away from Shunem, far away from the Israelite army. So unless the Philistines decided to go backwards and backtrack back towards their land, it appears the events of chapter 29 happened before the events of chapter 28. But why did the narrator decide to arrange the story this way? Why not go through the events chronologically in the order it happened? Here's my answer. The author does generally proceed in a chronological order, but at times he rearranges the events to focus more on key individuals. Throughout 1 Samuel, the author juxtaposes Saul, the current king, and David, the future king, That way, we learn to distinguish a godly ruler from an evil one. We're shown why the head of Saul's house failed and why the head of David's house succeeded. 
Back and forth we go. Recall in chapter 17, the Goliath story. We go back and forth from Saul and David. One dismayed and greatly afraid. The other defiant, courageous, and brave. In chapter 22, we learn that David draws people to himself and becomes their captain. Meanwhile, Saul repels people. He's morbidly suspicious of his men. He destroys innocent lives. Now we continue the contrast in these last few chapters of 1 Samuel. And not only do we see these two men, Saul and David, as if in a split screen, we see them turning, facing each other. It seems the two are set on a collision course as the Israelites and the Philistines line up for combat. We learned in chapter 28 that Saul cannot avoid his fate, his final destination. It's too late to get off. God has determined it. But what about David? In chapter 29, God determines that his anointed must do a 180 degrees turn. Get off that collision course. Go in the opposite direction. I say today's sermon points are like a three-point turn in a narrow road. Remember those at driving test, the three-point turn? They respond to the threefold division of this passage, verses 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 11. The king of Gad, Achish, responds three times in three exchanges with three emotional appeals concerning David's part in the upcoming clash. And as lessons for us, here are three ways God directs us or redirects us in his providence and sovereign will. God uses these three things to get us back on track. One, God uses our true identity for our good and his glory. Verses one to three. Two, God uses our past victories for our good and ultimately his glory. That's verses four to seven. And three, God uses, uses even our tainted works for our good and ultimately his glory. Verses eight to 11. First, God uses our true identity for our good and his glory. David and his men are at the rear of the Philistine forces. They must have blended in okay at first. They did go 30 miles from Gath to Aphek without drawing attention to themselves. But the Philistine lords, also called princes, inspect their soldiers carefully And this is where our hero and his followers are exposed. What are these Hebrews doing here? The leaders ask in verse 3, Even if David and his men wore Philistine armor, they couldn't hide their distinctive features. Here's a quick aside on the genealogy of the Philistines. You can find these in Genesis 10, 1 Chronicles 1. 
They traced their lineage to Noah's son Ham. Ham begat Mitzrayim, which, by the way, is the Hebrew Aramaic name for Egypt. So the Philistines are distantly related to the Egyptians. We're told that the Mitzrayim fathered Kasluhim, and from Kasluhim came the Philistines and Kaptorim. Jeremiah 47.3 says they're the remnant of the country of Kaptor. Amos says that the Philistines were a migrant people group. They left Kaptor as, uh, just as Israel left Egypt. See that in Amos right, 9.7. They came and conquered Avim, the coastal people of Canaan, and settled there according to Deuteronomy 2. I could go on with archaeological finds and pottery remains and various theories about their migrations, but all that to say, the Israelites looked different than the Philistines. Achish tries to convince them that David's trustworthy. He's been around over a full year now. In all appearances, he's a servant of Achish, no longer a servant of Saul. But the lords are not convinced, as they say the jig is up. David's plan comes to a halt. Scheme to fake his identity doesn't work anymore. Instead, the sovereign Lord uses David's true identity for the good of his people and the glory of God. As Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. In a similar way, God wants to use your true identity for your good and his glory. Perhaps you face the same temptation as David did. You don't want to stick out. You'd rather blend in or fade into the background. Maybe you want to be a sleeper agent for Christ, a secret spy for God's kingdom. But that's woefully short of God's ideal. Covert operations make a great Tom Clancy book, but that's not what the Bible calls us to do. Undercover missions are the stuff of James Bond movies, but that's not the mission of the church. Our job is to preach Christ, not hide Christ. It's from us that the word of the Lord must sound forth, just as it did with the Thessalonian church. We shouldn't and we can't really hide our true identity from the world. Some believers are afraid to reveal their true identity. But if we are obedient to the Great Commission and live according to God's word, the world will eventually ask, what are these Christians doing here? I hope that the people in Howard County and Elkridge ask the same thing. What is this church doing here? God wants to use our true identity for our good and his glory. Perhaps you're like me. You feel convicted. Maybe you haven't been bold enough in your witness for Christ. Even like David, hiding and growing comfortable among the enemies of God. Two practical actions for you. 
First, join us tonight as we start the way of the master, evangelism training. If you can't join us, you can purchase the material and go through the training on your own. There's plenty of resources out there for evangelism training. These days, you can just, um, I mean, you can ask us for recommendations, but there are many ways to get trained. Secondly, and this sort of leads to the second point, if applicable, think back to a time when you had the courage to live true to your Christian identity. Maybe it was when, by God's grace, you overcame a habitual sin. Maybe you were regularly sharing the gospel. Maybe it was when you discipled a younger Christian. This kind of remembrance is good. Godliness, good works that you formerly did for God's glory, your spiritual accomplishments. And that leads us to the second thing God uses for our good and his glory, our past victories. So coming back to the story, we see that the Philistine lords are upset. They think the king of Gath is naive. He's stupid for bringing David and his men into battle against their own people. Perhaps they're experienced more, you know, more in wars and they suffered through more betrayals. Their collective wisdom prevails over Achish. They're reminded of that song, sung by Israelite women years ago on the occasion of David's victory over them. They see David as a threat, a sleeper agent, a sleeping giant that once killed Goliath, their giant. They snip out his plan to betray them. So even if Achish suspects nothing, he has no choice but to yield and dismiss David. David's plan was to conceal his past as much as possible, but God's plan was to reveal it. Just as the sovereign Lord used David's true identity, he uses David's past victories to accomplish his purposes for the glory of God and the good of David, really. The past has a way of catching up with us, and that's not always a bad thing. I think the lesson for us is the following. God's reminding us that we don't need to scheme, ambush, or come up with some genius plan for our next victory. Trust in him as we did our previous victories. How sad that such a reminder had to come from the mouths of David's enemies. We have a better source that reminds us God uses our past victories for his glory and our good. It's true, the Bible teaches us that our former spiritual accomplishments can be motivations for godly living now. I'll name three instances from the New Testament. In Galatians 4, 12 to 20, Paul reminded the Galatians about how they first met and the hospitality they showed the warm welcome of the apostle and his message. He does this to motivate them to return to the true gospel. 
Here's another example. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, 32 to 35, he asks his audience to recall the former days when they endured a great struggle with sufferings, faced persecutions directly and by association, yet they responded with compassion and joy even as they suffered great loss. What's the point of bringing up these past victories? So that they do not cast away their confidence, which has great reward. One more. In 2020, during the COVID lockdown, Kerry led us in a study of Revelation 2-3. to We studied the seven churches, the words of Jesus to each of them, and to the overcomers. Recall what our Lord said to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 to 4, 2 verse 4, sorry. Revelation 2 4 says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Looking back in your life, what are some spiritual accomplishments that motivates you today? Personally, I'm reminded of my college days when I regularly went out to share the gospel in my campus, Stamp Union, Hornbake, McKeldin Mall. Back then, I didn't know Greek or Hebrew. I haven't gone to seminary yet. I haven't got around to systematic theology or church history. And I still had a lot of maturing to do. But when it comes to being a faithful witness to the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission, at least for a season, I think I was living in spiritual victory. And because I had these moments in the past, I believe by God's grace I can do it again. God uses our true identity for his glory and our good. He uses our past victories for his glory and our good. But what's amazing about God's sovereignty is that he uses even our tainted works for his purposes. That's the third point we're going to talk about. So the princes of Philistia have spoken. Now in verse 8, it's David's turn to ask questions. In self-defense, he brings up his clean track record as a servant of Achish. David was in ruler's sight, an angel of God. It's clean because David got rid of all the evidence that would incriminate him. Remember back in chapter 27, how he and his men raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. But he deceptively told Achish that they raided Judah, his tribe, along with the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. Those are his allies. He killed all of his enemies and kept his cover as a spy. But David brought back cattle and clothing as spoils of war, day after day, week after week, month after month. So Achish was satisfied and trusted in him. 
He wasn't suspicious of David like the other rulers. God used those good graces to protect his anointed. So Achish simply and peacefully sends David back to Ziklag with his blessings. He doesn't join the other rulers in the suspicion. So the three-point, 180 degrees turn is now complete. David's not going into that battle. So what are we to make of David's reputation with the king of Gath? Well, it's shady. I said when I covered chapter 27 that there's a mixture of good and bad here. It's good that David and his men defended the Israelite borders and fought against their enemies. It's bad that they lived a duplicitous life for an extended period of time. Two things can be true at once. Pure intentions do not justify simple behavior. Positive results do not cancel out negative decisions. Sovereign God sees this complicated mass of motives, choices, and consequences in David's life. He mysteriously works through it all to bring glory to himself and bring out the best outcome for David and Israel. This idea that God is sovereign over all things is nothing new. In that classical passage in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph told told his brothers who betrayed him, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Job, after enduring so much unexplained suffering, responded to God, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's 42, verse 2. Paul tells us that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. God uses our tainted works without himself being tainted. And this is the amazing sovereignty of God. Now, it would be best for us to acknowledge his power and live willingly for him. If you desire to be used by God and be part of his plan, if you want your works, tainted as they are, to matter for eternity, I ask you to consider two concluding applications. One, trust in the finished work of Jesus, if you haven't already. And two, entrust your unfinished works to Jesus. First, trust in the finished work of Jesus. As we talk about what Jesus has done for us, we need to talk about divine sovereignty again. The early church in Jerusalem, in a prayer in Acts 4, Recognize how Father God, the all-powerful creator, brought about the greatest good out of the greatest evil. 4, 27, 28 says, Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. 
At the cross, evil men gathered with ill intent and corrupt acts. They thought they were powerful, but God remained in control. They could only do what his hand and purpose determined before to be done. And that purpose was to save mankind through Jesus Christ. Why is it that we need saving? It's clear from the scriptures that all of us have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. In every way, we are tainted by evil. Like David, we mixed lies with truths. We lusted. Like Saul, we're people pleasers and disobey God's clear commands. And the punishment for our sins is hell. Eternal separation from the holy, perfect God. But he did not leave us as we are. He did not keep his distance. He stepped into our fallen history. Sent his son, Jesus Christ, holy man and fully God. He lived a perfect life without blemish and without spot. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He himself committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Yet he endured hostility and was slain for us. He took the punishment that we deserved at the cross, God's just wrath. He rose from the dead on the third day, conquered death, and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus has finished the work of salvation. There's nothing left to be done, to be saved. All that remains for us is to repent, turn from ourselves, and turn to Jesus and trust in him. We cannot earn it or deserve it. It is grace, not a works. Now, if it's all God's grace and it's all finished, what are Christians supposed to do? Why aren't we transported to heaven at the moment we believe? The Lord not only had a plan for us to go to heaven someday, he has a plan for us to stay on earth today. God prepared beforehand that we might walk in good works. So here's the second application. After you trust in the finished work of Jesus, Entrust your unfinished works to Jesus. Abide in him to bear much fruit, for without him, we can do nothing. Don't give up when you fail at times. Because we're not glorified in our bodies yet, there will be times when our good works mix up with bad works. Repent and try again. Keep at it. Keep offering your bodies as living sacrifice, as instruments of righteousness to God. Be motivated by gratitude and the mercies of God. Live for God, to live victoriously. This can only be done through the help of the Spirit. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that in so many ways that we do not see, you're working in our lives, bringing circumstances and the consequences of choices all together to accomplish your perfect purposes. Lord, we give ourselves willingly to you. We know who we are. You called us out of this world. Lord, you've given us all the tools we need to live victoriously. And Lord, even though we may fail at times to live in truth, to live consistently with our identity, we give ourselves to you over and over again. And we thank you that we, our lives are in your hands, that you direct us in seasons of obedience and even seasons of disobedience with your discipline, with your hand that guides us. May we trust in you and rely on you each and every day, even this week, even today, even this next hour or so as we go our separate ways. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.